Welcome to the Blueprint Podcast, where we throw out the old blueprint so you can become who you were always meant to be. I'm your host, Jason Smith, and if you haven't already, make sure you click the subscribe button and share this podcast with your friends on social media and tag me in it at jbirdfit. On today's episode, we have Dr. Mary Catherine McDonald, author of Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong. MC, thank you so much for being on the show and taking time to be with us today. I absolutely loved your book, Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong and Other Things You Need to Know to Take Your Life Back. It's such a powerful message, and I'm curious what your inspiration was for writing such an empowering book. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, the There were a lot of things that inspired me to write the book, but I can kind of boil them down to two aspects. One was the work that I was doing in the in academia. So I was you know, researching trauma, trying to understand how to help veterans through the reintegration process a little bit better than we currently do in the United States. And then two, I was um, having my own life traumas and learning through academic work, through work with clients. I've had a coaching practice since 2011. So working with clients and then also research subjects, kind of all of the things we are doing wrong when it comes to talking about defining and treating trauma and really wanted to turn the ship around or play a part in turning the ship around, which many people are also working to do. You're also a life coach. Yes. And how did you get into that? And what was the purpose behind getting into life coaching? I had a very strange path through academia. I had a very strange path into coaching and I can I can explain it pretty quickly, but I want to preface it by saying it, it, I don't think it was the norm. So I was doing a lot of my research. I did an interdisciplinary PhD. So I was looking, I was housed in a philosophy department and I was looking at philosophy, psychology and neuroscience and trying to understand and redefine trauma and as I was doing that, I was I was also looking critically using sort of a philosophical critical lens at the whole field of mental health in general and writing a lot of research papers and presenting at conferences against the field of psychology. And at the same time, I really wanted to work with research subjects and I would I was thinking about potentially working with clients. It felt incredibly disingenuous to spend all this time in academia tearing down the field of psychology and then potentially getting a clinical license. And so I looked into coaching at the time because it seemed like a way that I could operate with clients outside of the field that I was trying to take down. Because I know there's all this stuff about like, oh, you change the field within. But in psychology, there are a lot of ways you can't do that because the rules are totally different when you have a clinical license versus when you're a coach. Not totally different, but a lot of the things are different. Let's dive into that a little bit deeper. What is the difference between life coaching and then working as a therapist or a psychologist? The, the very short answer is it depends on who you ask. Um, coaching is um, an un, it's, a, it's kind of the wild west. You can get an ICF certification in life coaching, which kind of binds you to a set of ethics and, and codes. But you can also operate as a life coach just by being who you are. For that reason, it's kind of an open field. There are a lot of people, I actually had a chapter of the, about this in Unbroken that got cut out that I want to figure out what to do with, because I think it's an important conversation that we are getting wrong in many ways. Yeah, so let's some, unpack it here for a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So some, some people cut the line and they're like, you can't talk about the past in a coaching relationship. Coaching is future focused. And if you're talking about the past, you're doing therapy. I think that's kind of a ridiculous line. And I... The way that I sort of add some credence to that is I ask people, like, have you ever had an interesting conversation with someone where the past didn't come up at all? Like we are totally the present and the future is totally influenced by the past that we just came from. And there's a big difference between referencing the past on the way to a goal and doing Freudian psychoanalysis, you know? Um, so some people cut the line and they say, you know, coaching is future focused. Therapy is past focused. Some people say that therapy is um, processing things and a coach holds up a mirror and holds you accountable. For me, I think that it's more important that we pay attention to the similarities in the fields than the differences. And think about the fact that in either situation, you're in a therapeutic relationship. And the goal of a therapeutic relationship is to grow. And that growth may be involves looking at barriers that are coming up and getting in the way of growth. Maybe it looks at the future and making planning. Maybe accountability is involved. I think there's a lot more crossover than we are maybe comfortable admitting. So for me, the main difference between a therapist and a coach is that a therapist will have a more singular modality focus and a coach will have a different focus. 
So when you go to school for therapy, there's this huge push, at least right now in the United States, to focus on one or two or maybe a couple at most modalities. So you do dialectical behavioral therapy only, and you work with a certain population only. And to me, as a researcher, that feels really limited because I want to know about all the modalities and I want to be able to focus on lots of different things no, but you're coach as well. Right. So what no, you yeah. So when I start working with a client, I immediately tell them this is coaching of and, course. and yeah. not, and not therapy. I want to make that extremely clear because a lot mm -hmm. of what I go through is rooted in my experience as a police officer on top of life experience, on top of all the training I had to include crisis and intervention. So there's this massive understanding of how relationships actually work and how we navigate them and some of the downfalls and pitfalls that we fall into when we hit this negative stride in, in whatever that looks like. And so a lot of times it's that domestic relationship. And so we would get sent out to all these different places daily. I was in people's houses having conversations about their personal lives. And so you start to look for books like yours, like Unbroken, to be able to navigate some of these tougher situations because we're not getting the training that we needed to be able to navigate that in a more effective way. It's very much show up, take a report, do the best we can, make an assessment. And if there's something else that needs to be done there, then we move forward from there with the knowledge and abilities that we have mm -hmm. and the tools and resources that are available to us. Right. Right. And so that becomes really difficult for the first responder to navigate all that because you don't really understand what's happening in the moment because there's a lot of other stuff that's going on in the background. And we're just seeing this one little moment, this little snippet in time. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I, I we're there, we're talking about the previous 45 minutes, <laughs> mm -hmm. but right. there's this whole lifetime mm -hmm. that happened prior to that. Now we're not there for diagnosis or for anything like mm -hmm. that. But when you have that greater understanding of what that relationship actually looked like, yep. you know, before that 45 minutes when you showed up, um, now you can approach it a little bit differently, mm -hmm. potentially. Um, again, every situation is different. So when I'm working with a client, I just make it very clear that, you know, this is coaching. I'm here to support you. We're going to, I'm going to guide you through a process. And if anything bumps up internally in regards to something with therapy or something along those lines, I, I need you to tell me that's a boundary that we set with each other. Yeah. Let me know. And we won't go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Now there are people that are like, Oh no, let's, let's go in that direction. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's a personal mm -hmm. choice for them if they're willing to, to go that route, yeah. because there's still a ton of skills and abilities and we'll get into this in a minute, but it's like, there's so many skills that we missed out on when we were younger. Yeah. And, and that's really what's happening when you're coaching somebody is you're just navigating their, their lack mm -hmm. of skills. And it's, you mm -hmm. know, it's not something to feel shame about or guilt or anything like that. Yeah. You just don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And so if I can help you build that skill set and now yeah. you can assess your background a little bit differently and see mm -hmm. it with a different perspective. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, the blinders come off and mm -hmm. your field of vision opens up a little bit and you feel a little bit stronger, a little bit more capable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's so well said. And I, I love that dis distinction between therapy and coaching and also the idea that you, number one, you meet the client where they are. And two, you proceed in a way that you're both comfortable with. Um, and so when I'm working with a client, something I talk about often when it comes to trauma is the way that traumatic events sort of scatter our memory files. And often that scattering is something that needs to be dealt with in therapy and also many other times later. So I think sometimes we have this frame on it that like, oh, I've done therapy about this. So I've done, you know, the work. And I can check the box and it's done. And what we don't realize is that this stuff is really sneaky. And so I often find myself with clients being like, wait, hold on. We're, we're looking at this memory file because we're trying to figure out, you know, what is a barrier to financial success for you? Or why does joy feel scary? And you've done all this acute healing stuff in therapy, but this, there's still some kind of fragmentation going on in the memory or some kind of meaning that got attached to this event that doesn't fit your life anymore. And so we're kind of going in there and like tweaking these memory files a little bit, not the memories themselves, but where those files sit and what they mean and how they relate to the larger story of your life, which 
is totally normal to have to do at many different stages. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like you do the work and it's over and then you've done therapy and graduated, you know? And I think that's a concept that sets with so many people is that, you know, I did the work, I am healed. Yeah. Right. And so my, my constant phrase is always, no, we're always in a state of becoming. Yes. And when you recognize that you're always in a state of becoming, that means you also have the opportunity to become something new, yeah. different, expansive. Mm-hmm. You get to change. You know, you're not required to be the same person that you were mm-hmm. five minutes ago. Exactly. Yep. And those that what that then means is that your memory files, which are still the same files in the same order and whatever, might take on different meanings because now you're going in a different direction. And so how do we need to reevaluate those, you know, yeah. and we can do that endlessly, which is really empowering, I think. I think it is, too. But you touched on something there that really hit me. Why does joy feel scary? Oh, so many reasons. I just. Oh, man. It. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a there's like at least eight reasons. I don't know if I'm going to remember them off the top of my head. I'm right. Re- my next book is about joy. Okay. Um, and so what, one of the things I'm taking on in the very beginning of the book is what comes up and gets in the way. Like it, it seems almost counter to everything we think about the human experience that we would like resist or avoid joy. So why is it so hard for us so often? So I, I dove into some of the research about foreboding joy, which is this, I, that, that phrase was, was coined by Brene Brown. Just this idea that sometimes we get stuck in these negative feedback loops in our brain and we get stuck there and joy feels impossible. And then we kind of make it impossible. And so then the question is like, why on earth would we do that? And one is because joy is an overwhelming feeling. And if you've had a trauma history, overwhelming feelings are triggering just by nature. And we can't really like selectively, we think that we can compartmentalize really well, but the human brain isn't actually really good at that. So when we try to compartmentalize intense emotions, like bad emotions from good emotions, we're not good at that. So we have to numb them all. Another reason that's that it that we avoid <laughs> and, and we're it, really good at that, aren't we? We're really good at that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and another reason is that we know if you've had a trauma history, you know how precarious happiness is because it's been ripped away from you. That makes going back into happiness feel really scary. Another reason is that the the traumatized brain is hypervigilant by nature and joy is the opposite of hypervigilance. And so when we feel joy, we naturally, this is the brain chemistry, the the way that the brain circuits work, the fear circuit turns down as the joy circuit turns up. And then the system experiences that as danger because you're not being as hypervigilant as before. So if you think about like a sniper on watch can't like be scrolling through Instagram and laughing right? That's dangerous. And so you have to be kind of cued into your hypervigilance. There's also sometimes negative associations that get attached to joy. If you experienced a traumatic thing right after or in the midst of a joyful thing. So let's say something traumatic happened at your wedding or something happened when you were a kid and you were, you were in a moment of like flow and connectivity and joy, and then something terrible happened, you can actually come to associate joy with fear. Your brain kind of incorrectly labels that as danger. Totally lost count. I don't know how many that is, but there's many real actual neurobiological reasons that we can avoid joy. The cool thing about knowing the neurobiological reasons is that then we can kind of reverse engineer them and and kind of weave joy back into our lives. And how can we begin to allow joy back into our lives? What's one simple tool that can get us started? The one thing I think we can do... Um, The first step is to notice that you're resisting it and that that resistance is important because we don't want to just squash that and say, like, do what we do with everything else and feel ashamed about, you know, the fact that we are someone who can't feel joy because that's that's our immediate go to. That's the most convenient explanation for anything is that I am bad. It is my fault. I am broken, which is the whole reason I wrote unbroken, because we're not broken. These things are, in fact, proof of our unbrokenness. So that's step one. And I think step two is this, I've developed this practice called tiny little joys where you just scale like all the way down. And instead of talking about these huge joys that are supposed to like be equal in weight to the traumatic things, you just notice and open yourself up to tiny little things that provide you with joy. Like I'm sure you can find three things in your room that you're in right now in your office that give you a little spark of joy. It could be like, I'm drinking this LaCroix. It's cold. That's a oh, nice I, I'm looking right at my home gym. And, there you go. <laughs> and it's amazing. <laughs> so there you go. Right. And then the feeling after a workout and the endorphins that get released. And when you're like 
sweating and knowing you're kicking ass even though you didn't want to, like those are tiny little joys. The way the sun comes in the room. And if you train your brain to notice those things, your brain starts to notice them more often. And the more often you're connected to those things, the more often you're connected to a part of the brain that's been called the hope circuit. And the hope circuit kind of runs counter to the fear circuit. So those two, two things can't be on at the same time, which is, again, going back to why do we avoid it? That's one of the reasons why hypervigilance can make us want to turn joy off because it by necessity turns fear off. And so the more you're in the, the hope circuit, you, you actually start rewiring your brain. It's amazing. Cool. I know, right? It, it is cool. So whenever I go live on Instagram, usually I'm at the dog park. Okay. Um, it's a baseball field near my house, and mm -hmm. we I take my German shepherd out shepherd out there, oh. but I invite people to slow down, mm -hmm. to take a breath. We step into a little bit of breath work, just light, easy, focused, yeah. and then I encourage them listen to all the sounds. Yes, there's cars on the roadway; we can hear mm -hmm. that, but what else can you hear? And you know, the microphone picks up all the animals that are around, all the insects, the crickets, the flow of the branches, the wind going through the trees and the leaves and the rustling. And every now and again, you can hear a plane go over, but it's like putting yourself actually in the moment and allowing yourself to be present in the now yep. is my way of being able to connect into the present and find that joy in the moment, watching my dog chase that ball with that intense focus and watching the muscles in her body just move the way that they do. And she just goes after it so quickly. Like she's so freaking happy that that, that then brings me joy as well. And then just, that. and then just savoring that because it's yeah. so transient, it's fleeting, it's short lived. Mm -hmm. We don't get to hang on to that very long. No, but it's always there. Yes. Even in the darkest moments, there, there are these little things that will filter in and, and, and you said that perfectly, like savoring it, imprinting that, is actually healing for your brain. It was funny as you were talking, I felt like I was there, like in the dog park, <laughs> and my like shoulders started to come down. And I was like, oh, what a nice day. <laughs> yeah. I also love how your book opens. Hey, you, you're not alone. Goes along with something I agree very deeply with, and that's the fact that we're not broken. But why do you think so many people take that on as like a badge of honor that, oh, I'm broken? Yeah. So there's two, there's like a two part answer to that question. And one I think has to do with the history of the study of trauma, which I go into pretty in depth in the first chapter of the book as non-boringly as I possibly could. I'm not sure how, how that landed. No, but you did a fantastic <laughs> job with that. <laughs> I, I, bo I both read it and listened to it in the audible. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I good. did, I did bump it up to 1.7 though. Sure. I love yeah. it. Anything <laughs> under two or like five. Yeah. 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 That um, it's hard to do 150 years of history in like 20 pages <laughs> yeah. and not be boring. You know? For sure. But for me, I think the history of the study of trauma is really fascinating. And I think it's really important that we think about it because we have inherited unknowingly lots of incorrect beliefs based on bad science and shame about what the trauma response is. And so way back in the 1800s, when psychology really seriously started studying trauma, we didn't have brain science. We didn't have fMRI studies that allow us to look at blood flow in the brain. We didn't really know anything about the trauma response, about the hormone system, about the stress response system, about anything. And so all we had to do was guess. And the guesses that we made, some of them were, were kind of frighteningly accurate and some of them were totally wrong. And one of the things that we got totally wrong, and I believe we've carried this into the definition even today, is that if you're having a trauma response, and in particular, if that becomes chronic, this is a sign uh, or an indication of your brokenness. And what we now know in the science is that that's actually false. The trauma response is an adaptive evolutionary response that we would not have survived without. And so it's actually scientifically, this is not just my opinion, um, it is proof of our unbroken nature, not a proof of our brokenness. So the, the first part of my answer is that it's part of the history and the way that we inherit history without really realizing it. And the second answer or the second part of the answer is that we're living in a really strange time whereby struggle has become social currency and pathology has become social currency. And we have to tread really carefully here because I don't want people to hear that as me saying that trauma isn't real. I've dedicated my life to the study of trauma. Of course, I believe that it's real. And I think that we often reach for pathology to hide and we can use it to, we can weaponize it against each other and we can use it as a power move. And so I think sometimes people try to wear it as a badge of honor because 
it's powerful right now. It's powerful to be the most traumatized person in the room. That gets you a lot of compassion and a lot of attention and a lot of other things. And that can look really intoxicating. But the problem is once you've attached your identity with your trauma and fuse those two things together, healing becomes impossible because for you to heal, you'd have to give up your identity and your ego, like the healthy ego, will never let that happen. And so uh, we have to be careful. What do you mean by healthy ego? Well, I think that, I mean, there's lots of different theories about the ego. But, um, and I think sometimes when we talk about it too simply, we talk about ego as being this like inherently bad thing. But the ego is is a part of yourself, a part of your psyche that um, that isn't inherently bad or good. It just is. Um, and so it's trying to protect you. It's trying to assert itself. And when you define it as a single thing, and then that single thing comes into question, it can crumble. And ego death can be an incredibly traumatic thing. So, yeah. It's spiritual awakening. Yeah. yeah. Or, Dark. and Dark or. Night of the soul. <laughs> right. And or a lasting trauma or both, right? Like, right. yeah, it depends on the method and, and yeah. Yeah. And it becomes unfortunate because we end up using that language against ourselves as yeah. well. And it's really hard to navigate that and get ourselves out of that when mm -hmm. you have this constant, you're in this feedback loop and you, you can't get yourself out of it. And it's, you know, the same words, thoughts, feelings, or emotions over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And then you do run into this place where you start to feel angry, frustrated, irritated, mm -hmm. sad, lonely, depressed, isolated. And I speak from experience. Like I've gone through this. When you put yourself into a new situation and you allow that to wash over you, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. That became a tool to empower me. That's an amazing gift that you can give to yourself. I believe that you can. Yeah, totally. I think if you focus on curiosity and expansion, that's the way, yeah. right? So it's like you take your ego or you take whatever you're labeling this identity. And we don't have to make this so arch. It could just be like if you're having a career shift, right? And right. you've tied your whole identity to this one career and now you're realizing for whatever reason that you need to make a move, that can be really shattering, and so instead of trying to do it all at once, can you like take that identity that you know you're fused with and kind of just put it to the side just for like 20 minutes and then just see if you can find curiosity about another field or can you find some information about someone who has made a similar career, career shift? And then you can go back to your previous identity. This is um, kind of mirroring uh, something that Peter Levine calls pendulation which is when you have something really scary or a huge transformation, instead of trying to like blast through it, which is so our culture right now, mm -hmm. to, just to kind of like walk into it and then walk back out and then walk into it and then walk back out. And every time you do that, you're teaching your nervous system that like it can challenge and then come back to safety and then it can be challenged and then come back to safety. And that um, that in itself is healing no matter what you're pendulating between. Now, was that part of your work with the veterans, helping them transition into new life? Yes, a lot of it. So I worked with them um, with two populations that might be surprising. And one, one of them was veterans and the other was previously incarcerated gang members. And um, both in both populations, we were focusing on reintegrating into, you know, quote unquote, civilian society. So you've had this really unique experience that's really different from the rest of society in the United States. How can you kind of reintegrate? And a lot of what we were doing was looking at um, how your trauma has imprinted on your worldview. So if you are a gang member, for example, who has spent 20 years in prison, and now you come out and you're working on a, a factory floor, there are some aspects of the way that the factory floor functions that are going to look a lot like the way the yard functioned. And so how can we intellectualize that and figure that out before you're triggered at work? and then lose your job and then make reintegration impossible. And similar with veterans, where especially in the United States, we have a huge military civilian divide. That is one of the most corrosive things that you can have when it comes to trying to reintegrate post-military career, even if you've never been deployed. Um, and so how can you navigate kind of civilian society that is so, so different and also conquer this idea that like your trauma is telling you that you, it's telling you a lie, which is that you are isolated because, you know, something is wrong with you and the worldview is, the world is not something that can be trusted. Peace is impossible. Love is a lie, right? All of these things. So trying to just sort of notice those stamps on your worldview and then how do we move around them? 
I know. <laughs> no, I, I love it. We could talk, we could talk for a whole hour just on that. Yeah. I was going through your Instagram and I saw this post that I want to go over real quick. And it goes like this. One of the biggest failures of language of trauma is that we refer to traumatic memories as memories, as if they look or feel like all the rest of our memories, as if we had control over them. Traumatic memories are not memories. They are instances of unwilling and unbidden reliving. What does that mean? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So, okay, really quickly, we have to go over how regular memories get encoded in the brain and then how traumatic memories get encoded in the brain, if that's okay. Yeah. Because um, I think it's a failure of language. Like we don't talk about, we talk about trauma memories and we're using the same words. We're saying like my trauma memory, but what's actually happening is that your brain and body are going through something that is very much not a memory in the way that it looks like all the rest of your memories. So really quickly, do you have a funny thing that happened in the last like five days? Like a little funny thing? She, the UPS guy comes to the door and she is like on, on, on red alert. So let's say that happened yesterday, right? So between about four and 24 hours, given current neuroscience, after that event happens, you consolidate the memory in your brain. And so what that means is that you create a memory file that has three things in it, at least probably more. One is a story. So like, UPS guy came, I was trying to record a podcast, dog went crazy, we all laughed, right? Beginning, middle and end, there's coherence, we can tell what's going on. Then you have emotional content. So I labeled that story as funny. I think I always think it's funny when people's dogs do stuff like that, because <laughs> we like, it, they just always kind of get in the way in these hilarious moments. So there's emotional content with that memory file. And then there's a set of meaning tags that enables you to find it. So when I ask you the question of like, what was the funniest thing your dog did recently, you're able to go through the filing cabinets, all of the filing cabinets of all of your memories from your entire life and be like, oh, here's some things my dog does regularly. This is this time she barked at the UPS guy. I was in the middle of recording. It was funny. So that's a normal memory. That all happens between four and 24 hours after an event happens. When you have a trauma memory, when you have a trauma going on, sorry, um, your brain compensates for the danger that you're in by altering function of at least 47 different systems in your brain and body. All of that alteration is so that you are better prepared to handle the threat. So I always tell the story of like, my house is kind of nestled into the woods. And so my bedroom window is sort of exposed to like the forest in a way. And so often there's like a deer that will walk immediately behind my bed at three o'clock in the morning, which sounds exactly like two fully grown men walking by. <laughs> and I go immediately from my lowest heart rate, lowest blood pressure, I am sleeping to highest blood pressure, high heart rate in the hundreds within less than a second. And my brain is has gone from sleeping to totally alert and perceiving and move. sometimes I'm like moving across the room before I'm like fully awake, mm -hmm. trying to like get out of there or figure out what to do. Where's my phone? I got to unlock it. Who am I going to call? Blah, blah, blah. Then I realize that it's a deer or whatever. And I go back to sleep, right? All of those things are altering and we're designed to kind of move back and forth. That's the stress response system, which is kind of where the trauma response lives. And so when something overwhelming happens, my body and brain immediately adapt to so that I can better handle that threat. And it's incredibly sophisticated and amazing that we can do that. The problem is that two of the things that get sort of shut down or toggled down when we're in that high alert stage are the prefrontal cortex, which is in charge of rational thought and a lot of other things, and our hippocampus, which is the file room. And so if in the space of four to 24 hours, I don't go back in there and create a fully organized file that has a story, beginning, middle, and end, emotional content, and a set of meaning tags, I end up with a fragmented file. The fragmented file is something that the, the file room doesn't approve of. And so anytime anything comes into my periphery that looks like something from that folder, my the people that work in the file room, if you can imagine little Pixar animated dudes back there, throw the file to the front of your mind so that you can have the opportunity to organize it. The problem is your fear center, your amygdala and limbic system also recognize that thing is dangerous. And so instead of having a cognitive memory, like the one that you had of the UPS guy and your dog, you have an instance of reliving. And that is not a cognitive process. So we go through in our bodies internally, the trauma as if it were happening all over again. Trauma memories are not memories. 
They are instances of reliving until we integrate them so that they look like the rest of our memories. And then we no longer relive them when we remember. Instead, we talk about them. We feel some of the feelings. We maybe work with the meaning tags, but we don't have to relive them. Very long yeah. explanation. Does that make no, sense? No, it's just it's so hard when you get the sight, sound, smells. And, yeah. and it just it pops in and you it's not going away. It's not going anywhere. Yep. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I mean, yeah. w w what is something that we can do to try and navigate that in the mm -hmm. moment that that stress response, that external stimuli? How can we change how we're perceiving that situation? Number one. Us? Yeah, yeah. Super important. Number one, I think, is we can be aware of the fact that triggers happen. They are real and that we may not be control. We, we may not be in control of the stress response system. We have a lot more say when it comes to intervening on the stress response system once it gets started. And so um, I'll give you an example from my own life that's, that I also talk about in the book. I, um, my mother was a furious person, and so she yelled a lot. And until I was 35, right, so beyond 10 years into studying trauma, I didn't realize that I, I just thought I was bad at conflict because as soon as conflict happened, and this was true at work, in friendships, in, in interpersonal relationships, I was gone like couldn't remember what we were talking about. Mine totally blank, just like, and I was just like, God, I'm really bad at conflict. Like <laughs> I'm getting a PhD and I can't have a simple fight. Like this is a problem and kind of orchestrated my life so that there just was none around me. And then was in a work situation where I was working with someone who was about the same age as my mom. And all of a sudden realized that this was a trigger that was happening. Right. So it took me a very long time as a PhD trauma researcher. And I'm emphasizing that not to brag, but to say that like these, these triggers are so sneaky. Um, I totally did. You mean you're also it. human? <laughs> Seriously? Right. right. <laughs> well, but this is the trick. Like, I think we think like, okay, once I cognitively understand trigger just as a term, then I under automatically understand all of my triggers. And now I can, and I should never be affected by them again. Yeah, no, you have to understand it somatically as well. I mean, there's just. Completely. Yeah. And so now it's gotten to the place where um, I can engage in conflict, which is super important because you can't really essentially have relationships at all without conflict. Um, and two, I can also recognize that not only is it a trigger, but it's often a really good barometer for someone who has a rage problem, who I might not want to be involved with, right? So I've like gone from having this like thing that I didn't understand to having immediate shame about that thing to like, oh, this is actually a superpower because I can suss out really quickly using my awareness of my heart rate in the presence of someone else, whether or not this person is safe. And so I think like that's the full arc of it. And by no means like this, this will still come up for my whole life. This is not something I've like conquered and healed, but it's something that I feel like I can now have awareness about to the point where I can give myself enough of a pause to get myself out of the situation and back to baseline before something bad happens. That's the goal is to be able to be like, oh, hold on this feeling. This is the trigger feeling. Now, now I have 10 things in my toolbox that I can do that are different based on what kind of different situations I can find myself in where I can get my stress response level back down and then figure out what to do there because you can't make any decisions, as you know, in, the, in that space. Right. And that level of self-awareness is so important. Mm -hmm. I talk a lot about relationships on my platform and mm -hmm. yep. we dive into the anxious and the avoidant trap. Yep. Yep. And so much of it revolves around when you understand your goals, values and standards for a relationship with you, mm -hmm. you also tap into your boundaries. Mm -hmm. Right. And so yep. when we can be, begin to understand that for ourselves and kind of key into that then what you're talking about as far as using that experience, mm -hmm. that that internal barometer to recognize yeah. that and do that check-in with ourselves, right? Because mm -hmm. you got to check in. Yeah. If, you're not, if you're not checking in on a regular basis with yourself, please start yeah. because it's going to give you a lot of information that you wouldn't yeah. normally have or recognize. And then mm -hmm. you can make those decisions. Hey, is this a good relationship for me? How yeah. do I feel in this relationship? Do I like yeah. this experience? Am I having fun with this? Do I feel comfortable? Do I feel safe? Right. And it sounds like a lot of questions, but it's happening all at the same time oh gosh, yeah. if, if you allow it. So, yep. And your body is such a it's such a sophisticated, fine tuned barometer. It is giving you information every second of every day. And if you can have just like 
10% more awareness of that than you do now, you have so much more mastery over your nervous system. When you add that to tools, so one of the things I do in the book is there's tools at the end of every chapter that are kind of designed to this end. Like how can you have a little bit more mastery over your nervous system? So when you have the awareness and then you add some tools that are designed to re-regulate your nervous system, then you're like off to the races, you know, like in the good way, not the bad way. Yeah, no, your addition of tools at the end of every chapter is a brilliant addition. I, I oh, thought it was, I thought it was amazing because when we read these books, we don't often get that type of furtherance of the chapter. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I have this information, but what next? Really? And one of the tools that you give away is Tetris. Yes. Explain that to us <laughs> and, and how that's helpful for the traumatic brain. This is one of my favorites because I, number one, the Tetris movie is excellent. So if you haven't seen that, go see it. This is not an ad. It's just really yeah. good. Not, um, not, not affiliated guys. Yeah. Okay. R relax. <laughs> Nintendo is not yeah. paying us. Um, and, uh, but I also grew up playing Tetris and I am so good at Tetris that um, when I play like on a plane, people like stop what they're doing and watch. I'm on like leaderboards in California for Tetris. Yes. <laughs> like, this is the whole thing. So I played since I was a kid and then was absolutely thrilled to learn um, in like 20, I think it was like 2015 that researchers in neuroscience started using Tetris when they were looking at um, modalities that could help sort of short circuit the trauma response when it, when it got kicked off. And so they took um, veterans who were diagnosed with PTSD, they showed them a stimulus that, that was going to be triggering, so a picture or a little short film of something. They watched the trauma response go off in the brain, which enables them to see where blood flow and electrical activity is kind of moving, because blood flow tends to go with electrical activity. And so what they saw is that a lot of blood flow and electrical activity was moving away from the prefrontal cortex, which is what I mentioned before, is the part of your brain that's kind of responsible for decision-making, rational thought, things like that. Um, and then they had them play Tetris for 20 to 60 minutes, put them back in the fMRI machine and boom, the prefrontal cortex was reconnected. So essentially what you're doing when you're playing Tetris in a moment of overwhelm or even stress, by the way, any of these tools work with stress as well as trauma because the S in PTSD is stress. So all of the trauma response happens in the stress response system. So you can even just do this when you're feeling really overwhelmed at work. If you do something that 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 um, kind of creates a continuous bid in your prefrontal cortex, like play Tetris, um, you will manually push blood flow and electrical activity away from the fear center and back to the prefrontal cortex. So over time, your fear center is like, well, I guess that's a fa false alarm because you wouldn't be playing Tetris if we were actually being chased by a wolf. And it starts to calm down the release of stress hormones through your body and you start to feel more calm. And then you can return to rational decision-making. This is true of Tetris. If you hate Tetris, that's okay. Um, anything that makes a continuous bid on your prefrontal cortex is going to do the same thing. The reason they studied Tetris is because the, the longer you play it and the better you get, the faster the game gets. So it never really gets easier in a way. And you can't stop paying attention with your eyes. Um, and so, uh, but you can accomplish the same thing with baking, which requires an incredible amount of concentration, um, like sewing, <laughs> knitting, playing the guitar, you know, like, I think it was so fascinating that at the beginning of the pandemic, we all reached for hobbies that occupy our prefrontal cortex without having any knowledge of that fact that that's what we were doing, which I think is kind of cool. So as a former first responder, I got into woodworking. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I started I started making tables. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there was a period of time where, you know, you're just you're going through all this stress. You're working 16 hour days. You're going yep. through all this stuff. And I just I hopped on Anna White plans, downloaded the plans for a bunch of stuff. And now I have patio furniture. I have a kitchen table. My parents have a kitchen table. My sister has a kitchen table. So I, I was really going through it at the time. Yep. <laughs> it's just funny how you naturally gravitate to certain things that are going to help you regulate yourself mm -hmm. um in, in that moment of high stress yeah that's amazing did you build the 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 background behind you and the shelf uh-huh so of course right yeah yeah and and the arrow and the arrow <laughs> yep. yeah they're super cool you know what that is it's just um the dog-eared fencing oh cool and then i just popped it all in there yeah it's, it's awesome it, it doesn't go the span of the wall it's like it's a it's false yeah oh yeah I love that. <laughs> no the the tetris thing really interested me and is there a time frame that say so you go through an event whatever that is is there a time frame where it's most beneficial is it four hours six hours 24 hours that's a great question um 
yes, all of the time frames are beneficial. So they've actually done study, believe it or not, Tetris has been really widely studied when it comes to trauma, which I love. And the studies have been replicated, which means that they are valid essentially. Um, and so they asked, okay, if we give someone a task like Tetris right after say like a car accident, are they less likely to develop PTSD? I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but yes. Is it helpful when someone's having intrusive memories three weeks after a traumatic event, even if they didn't have any other intervention? Yes, I can't remember the exact numbers, but yes. Is it helpful if you're dealing with PTSD that comes up that you didn't even know that you had, that is being triggered 20 years down the road via you know, a repressed memory? Yes, it's effective all the time because essentially what you're doing is you're working against you're, you're short circuiting the wiring that's trying to tell you that you're in current danger. And so you can use that in any moment of overwhelm and it can be protective against PTSD and it can also be healing once you already have it, which is pretty cool. That's very cool. And it's so accessible. So again, not affiliated, but go to your app store, get it downloaded <laughs> on your phone yeah. and, yep. uh, you know, play it for a little bit each day. Go get an old Game Boy and play it like yeah. we used to. <laughs> oh, God, yes. It's With so the cool. song and everything. Yeah. yeah. What's the difference between big T and little t? Okay, awesome question. So um, th this difference has been largely created by us, and it has been uh, bolstered by social media bullshit. Can I swear? Sorry. Yeah, you can swear. Okay. Yeah, it's so it's so cute when everybody. Oh, can I? Is it okay? Yeah, be, be you. If you're good with it, I'm good with it. I come from from Massachusetts. We swear a lot, but um, so you know, some people have the indication in the app store, and you don't want to screw up somebody's whatever. Big T, little T. Big T, little T. Okay, this is bullshit because um, the so there is a distinction that is important that is very important clinically, which is between simple and complex trauma. Simple trauma is a trauma that occurred that's singular. So um, an attack, a car accident, um, a single domestic experience, one thing. Um, complex trauma is trauma that unfolds over a period of time. So that could be your entire childhood, having neglect or an, or an emotionally abusive or physically abusive parent. That could be bullying at work or school. That could be multiple deployments. That could be a single deployment, honestly, if that's going to be nine months. Um, any of these things can be um, traumatic. The reason that there's an important, that there's a distinction at all clinically is because certain interventions are more effective in, in, in a different order if you have a singular traumatic event versus a, a chronic trauma. So if you have a car accident, for example, that has prevented you from being able to get in the car and drive to work, that's an emergent issue. And one of the main um, things that they will do is suggest EMDR really quickly. EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing which is um, actually works for the same reason that Tetris does. What you're doing in EMDR is forcing blood flow and electrical activity back into your prefrontal cortex while you talk about the triggering memory. And so that enables you to um, work with the memory with the therapist while you um, kind of desensitize it essentially. So EMDR is gonna be like absolute first thing they do if you have a simple trauma. If you have a complex trauma, they're likely to suggest EMDR after maybe three or four other things. So it's important for a clinician to know whether you have simple or complex trauma because of the treatment path they're gonna send you down. Just as it's important for an emergency room doctor to know if you have acute appendicitis or like something that's going to become appendicitis maybe in 48 hours right? Because these two things mean you're going to be shot down different treatment paths in a different order. Um, we have taken on that to become this big T, little t trauma. Big T trauma means like um, the things that are in the DSM, these, these singular simple traumas that sort of count as traumatic and then lowercase t trauma, which are these more like subterranean traumas, being in an emotionally abusive relationship, something like that, that's not as specific. And then we use that against each other to say either my trauma is legitimate and yours is not, or your trauma is legitimate and mine is not. And that wreaks major havoc on relationships, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, and so it's just, it's not a competition. No, no. no. You know, and, and there is no comparison. What, what yeah. is very real for me is real for me. Right. Right. And just because you don't have a greater understanding of what that experience mm -hmm. might have looked like or felt like for me. Yeah. Because we can go through the same experience at the same time and have a completely different reaction and yeah. relate it 
much differently in our mind and body. Mm-hmm. Totally. Right. And then yep. it shows, shows up differently later on. So again, stop comparing. Stop comparing. Yeah. It's such a funny, th- and I think like there's a natural aspect to that where we're trying to like situate ourselves within our peer group always. And at the same time, we have to understand that that's one data point that we are probably misinterpreting whenever we do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's why I encourage people to do my 21 day self-love challenge because we dive into a lot of this stuff where it's, it's really creating a better relationship with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so much of what we experience and the difficulties that we go through that if we just understood ourselves a little bit better, Mm -hmm. mind, body, soul, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, then, you know, you can begin to navigate things a little bit differently because you're going to feel stronger. You're going to feel, you're going to have that level of Mm -hmm. self-acceptance. And when you have that, now you feel empowered. Another tool that you add in is breath work. Why, yes. why is that? Why is it so important? Because of the vagus nerve, um, which I'll explain in a second. I was going to say. <laughs> you probably already know. But um, the, uh, so number one, I think like, and again, I, I want to preface this by saying that I was the most resistant human on the face of planet earth when it came to dropping into my body. Like literally the first time a therapist told me that I was like, fuck you. Like, no. What are you talking about? I, I'm up here. We're comfortable up here. This is to be managed. I am not comfortable with that. <laughs> this is what causes me panic. And so the, the unfortunate thing, though, is that our bodies are along for the ride always. And so when we're dealing with unpacking a traumatic event or anything, we're healing from anything, we always have to work on a somatic level. The, the good news is that working somatically can actually speed up your healing process. So not only should it be viewed as like an adjunctive to any kind of like, you know, intellectual therapy that you're doing, but also can actually speed that up. So you have this miraculous nerve in your body called the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, not vagus, like vagus, woo. Um, and that's named that because that's the Latin word for wandering. And this nerve wanders from your brainstem all the way through your body and it touches all of your internal organs. And it is responsible for the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is sometimes called rest and digest. And so when we are in a trauma response, we're in the opposite of that. We're in sympathetic nervous system response, which is responsible for it. That's the thing that gets me up in the middle of the night and my heart rate, you know, super high and me able to fight off a criminal, even though it's just a deer. That's sympathetic. The thing that helps me get back to sleep once I realize it's just a deer and not a burglar is the parasympathetic nervous response, which is largely controlled by the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve has two spots where it has tons of nerve endings. One of them is the back of your throat and the other one is right in front of your diaphragm. When you take a really deep breath into your diaphragm, which is kind of in the center of your torso, so not like super low belly and not chest, You push against the vagus nerve in a spot where it has some of the most nerve endings that it has in the whole thing. When you do that, you manually turn on the parasympathetic response. So you can go from fight or flight and absolute freak out to rest and digest within like six breaths if you know where to aim it. The other thing you can do. No, I can't. That's impossible. That's pseudoscience. That doesn't exist. That's not real. False. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. Try it in traffic. The next time you get fired up in traffic, like just take six breaths and see what happens. Oh, no, I I am big on breath work. I encourage people to do it daily. Those are the responses that we get because Mm -hmm. it's so easy. It's free. I know. What do you mean? I you're going to tell me how to breathe. I already Mm -hmm. I already breathe just fine. You don't probably. Right. You know, mm-hmm. most of us, it, it, be honest with yourself. You're watching this right now. You're on YouTube and you're looking at your phone and your mouth is wide open. You're, yeah. you're getting that mouth breath into the neck, into the chest. You're causing yourself to have yeah. all this stress and tension. Mm-hmm. And if you just leaned into your breath and focus more on nasal breathing at rest, you might find yourself more in a parasympathetic state. Yep. Ta-da. Yeah. And so what is a a breathwork cadence that you would run somebody through? What would that look like for them and how Um, would they position themselves? So that's a good question. So I, um, I don't typically work with cadence because, um, I'm usually working with someone who's in an acute panic. And when you tell someone to, to breathe for a certain amount of time, sometimes that can kind of increase the panic response just intellectually. So I, I always say, like, forget the numbers. You can do four, four, four box breathing or like whichever cadence that you want. But when someone's really in an acute situation, 
I say lay down on the floor on your back with your feet flat on the floor. So your knees are like in a triangle and just try to, because when you lay on the floor on your back, your breath kind of naturally goes towards your diaphragm. And then I will say, okay, just focus on your breath. Don't worry about how fast or slow you're breathing. Just focus on your breath and where it's going. Once that's established, I would say, okay, can we expand the inhale and hold for just a beat and then try to push out and then expand the exhale a little bit. And then once that feels like it's possible, then it's like, okay, can you expand and hold? And then can you push your air back out using your ab muscles, which is going to engage the diaphragm even more and then push it against the vagus nerve even more. And so that's, I would focus there, especially if someone is a beginner and is not used to breath work, because then you at least know that the breath is going to the right place. It's so easy for us to get into shallow chest breathing and then, which actually activates the sympathetic nervous system. So if you're ever feeling really low energy, take a couple of short, quick breaths into your chest and that will increase your energy. It's, it's, it's miraculous stuff. No, it really is. And you talk about being grounded. What is grounding and what does that mean for us? So grounding exercises are anything that kind of aims to get you back into your body and away from that panic response. So we can work intellectually with these memory files and we can work somatically in learning how to feel safe in our bodies again and teach our bodies how to feel safe in the world. There are one trillion grounding exercises. You can Google grounding exercises and you can find your favorite ones that work really well. Um, one of my favorite ones is to literally get on the ground. Um, because a lot of, one of the things actually that gets sort of disconnected in your brain is the part of your brain that's responsible for proprioception, which is your sense of, um, self in space essentially. And so that's why sometimes the perceptions can feel really strange if you're having a panic attack or if you're hyperventilating and all of a sudden, like things start looking perceptually different. It's because your proprioception part of your brain is kind of turning off a little bit, getting on the ground and literally feeling into the ground underneath your back or your front. If you want to lay on your stomach, actually you'll push against the vagus nerve from both directions, which is great. And you can, you will actually notice within a couple of seconds, a lot less fear and panic because you're telling your body that you're not falling through space essentially, but you can use lots of different tactile things for grounding. I usually have on my desk, but I don't right now, like a fidget ring um, that has little spikes on it because uh, feeling a tiny little bit of pain um, can help you ground into the moment that can help with mindfulness. Cold water on your hands can help with this as well. Just feeling into that tactile experience of having cold water on your wrists. Um, what are some of your favorite grounding exercises? I feel like oh, man. a huge bunch. So my big thing on social media is take a walk with me. Yes. I throw on a weighted vest, you know, and this sounds probably a little more extreme than what most grounding exercises would be. But for me, it's getting out in nature and being yep. outside, going on that walk, allowing myself to get out all of that nervous energy. And mm -hmm. that's really what helped me navigate a lot of like the stress and feelings of oh anxiousness that, that I was going through. So it turned into, I would go for three miles and then I would go for six miles. And now I go for nine miles a day, yep. but it's just, it's such an amazing feeling when you're done. It's a way for me to manage those thoughts, feelings, and emotions that take me to a place that I don't necessarily want to go or be. Yep. And then I, I stay more centered. Another thing that I do, and this is kind of fun, but on the walk, uh, there's a set of like really old trees. Mm -hmm. And so you walk up and you just close your eyes and mm -hmm. you put your hand on the tree Yep. And you allow yourself to nasal breathe. You can do in for four, hold for five, out for seven, you know, whatever mm -hmm. you want the breath to be for you, whatever works. But you imagine yourself actually breathing through the tree. Mm -hmm. And it just automatically your shoulders drop, you relax yeah. and you feel so much calmer, but you almost also feel connected. Mm -hmm. in, in a weird way. And it's like, I know it sounds woo woo and spiritual and really odd. You can almost see it's almost like a meditative state that you're in because mm -hmm. you begin to see things like geometric shapes and different colors and stuff like that. Now, I don't know the science behind that and why that happens when you close your eyes. It could just be that the sunlight shining on me and I'm seeing all these things. I'm actually yeah. just seeing my eyelids. But whatever it is that you are seeing when you see that it's relaxing. Yeah, right. It's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I knew I was forgetting something huge, which is the power of movement. Yeah. Now we're learning in all the longevity studies that the absolute most important thing for longevity is exercise. 
and living a sedentary life can be really dangerous, which I know sounds so scary to so many people, especially if you do live a sedentary life. But the benefit of movement in addition to longevity, or maybe the reason it contributes to longevity is that it completes the stress cycle. So your stress hormones are sort of like herding dogs. Like they, if they don't have a job, they're going to destroy your house. And so if you walk for 20 to 30 minutes a day and you don't have to, you know, go to a 90 minute CrossFit class, you can walk around your neighborhood, um, just at sort of a quick pace as quick as you can comfortably. Um, you give the stress hormones something to do, which gets them out of your body. And then you don't marinate in stress hormones. When we marinate in stress hormones, this increases inflammation, which increases our likelihood of, of disease. Yes, it does. So I, yeah. I have no background to speak on this, right? I have a master's degree in threat and response management, mm -hmm. but we dive into Joe Dispenza. You start learning about his work and what that looks like and lengthening our yeah. telomeres and human optimization. Yeah. And yeah. there's just so many things that make sense. You know, who are we? Well, we're human beings. Well, what did human beings used to do? They used to get up and walk a lot mm -hmm. and, and have mm -hmm. a lot of physical activity that we just don't have anymore. If you don't learn that when you're young, that that's just a part of your life to get up and move around and yeah. do things and, and to be active and to challenge mm -hmm. yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally. We've gotten to a place where it's just really easy to just kind of sit and scroll and relax and get stressed mm -hmm. out and angry and frustrated and irritated and sad and lonely and depressed and isolated. And it's like, whoa, that sounds overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Get up and go for a walk. Right. Is it that simple? Not always, but right. it's a start and it's yep. something that you're in control of. Yep. And it's going to make you feel better. And if it feels intimidating, start with five minutes, then yeah. get to 10, then get to 15, then get to 20. And then, and again, you don't have to become like an elite athlete but um, moving will get the stress hormones out of your body, which will make you feel better. I was massively resistant at first. I hate walking, yeah. but I was resistant to going on the walks because, well, it's not high, fast paced enough for me. Right. But then you get into it, you start doing it. It becomes a habit. Make it past that 63rd day and you're just like, yeah, this is just something I do. You know? Yeah. yeah. And, and then it becomes a part of your life and then you don't question it. And then when yeah. you don't do it, you miss it. And you feel like crap and you, the, these negative feedback loops start yeah. again in your head and you're like, oh, wait, hold on, let me get back to it. The, um, the other thing is that walking, that's actually how EMDR was discovered. Um, Francine Shapiro was going through a traumatic event and she was taking these daily walks just to kind of like take a break and relax. And she realized that as she walked, her eyes moved back and forth. Because if you're walking, especially in nature and there's lots of trees, that's going to trigger, I can't remember the name of that type of um, ocular movement, but your eyes move back and forth. And she was like, wow, these walks are really healing. Like, what is going on? I'm not even specifically thinking about the event that happened. Um, and, but now there's a lot of research coming out about that and why it works. So she was basically just guessing and then built a modality out of that, which was really controversial in the 90s and now is being used as like the, you know, cure all for trauma, which is kind of that's a pretty amazing arc. And so is it a cure all? No, there's no cure all. Um, we got to use the spaghetti at the wall method and, and try, yeah. you know, stack modalities, do as many things as you can and be, um, humbly amused when the trauma pops back up like a little whack-a-mole because, um, it's a stubborn, a stubborn thing and that's okay. That doesn't mean you're broken. That means you're still healing. Yeah. It just means that everybody's nervous system is different yep. and what works for one person mm -hmm. may not work for you. But when you find that thing that does work for you, mm -hmm. man, now you can really hone down on that and start getting that working for yourself. So yeah, yeah, totally. How can we begin to let go of shame, blame, and guilt? Shame, blame, and guilt. Small question to end with. <laughs> I, I know. It's one of those ones that pops up so often uh, in my content. And yeah. we can put it in the context of relationships just because that's the type of people that follow me. They're mm -hmm. always looking for that type of type of answer. But they struggle with a lot of shame, blame, and guilt yeah. in the context of relationships. And they're just looking for a way to navigate that. Yeah, it's I mean, it's so tricky. So shame is the biggest barrier to healing, no doubt. So, so trying to heal with shame that's is the, like, I am bad. Right. Yes. Yeah. Shame, that's the way that shame and, and guilt dif differs. Guilt is that I feel guilty that I did X, Y, and Z. And, and there's a quick fix for that, which I'll get to in a second. But shame is this belief that, that gets imprinted on your soul, that there's something wrong with you, that there's something broken. This is again, one of the reasons why I, I titled the book unbroken, because I wanted people just to even, even if you don't buy the book, if you see it on a shelf, that plants the seed of this idea that like, oh, maybe we're not broken. Yeah, you yeah. just inception everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah. 
And so shame is this idea that I am bad, I am broken, um, and it is the biggest barrier to growth. So trying to grow with a shame mentality is like trying to hike with a um, with your car strapped to your ankle. You're not going to get very far. Um, and so what I try to get people to do rather than try to like combat the shame right off the bat is that I ask them to like think about what it is, what it looks like, and then imagine putting it away in a box and putting it on a high, high shelf just for a couple minutes. And then ask the question of like, how would you see this situation? How would you see this failed relationship if shame wasn't involved? If you couldn't use that word, then, then what, what comes up? And typically another story comes up that has a little bit more expansion, a little bit more room, a little bit more truth than whatever the shame story is. I think that's more effective than trying to take away someone's shame story because shame is really strong. And so if we try to take it away, it just tries to punch back, you know, um, when it comes to guilt, you know, guilt is like, I, there is something tangible that I can point to that I did wrong and I'm feeling bad about that thing. And I'm not necessarily imprinting that that makes me broken or bad, but I am carrying around this guilt. There are two really effective ways to deal with guilt. One is to see if there's anything you can do to make amends with the person in, in real life, right? Can you go back in a way that feels safe to them and to you and apologize and take ownership without blaming the other person. We'll get to blame in a second. Um, and if you can't because they don't want to hear from you or because um, they're not around anymore. Yeah, it just might not be appropriate. Right. Or it's not yeah. appropriate. Then you can commit to yourself to make a living amends, which is you recognize the thing that you did wrong. You recognize that you're going to have the opportunity to commit that wrong again. And you make a commitment to yourself that instead of that behavior, you're going to do one of these other three things. And living that amends gives you a way to let go through action, which I think is really critical. And when it comes to blame, I think that um, that's a space where it's really helpful to get a panel, right? Whether that's a coach, uh, a set of friends, a set of coaches, a therapist, um, to give you some real reflection on what's going on and what part of it you are here to take ownership over. Because if you're blaming an entire relationship on one thing or one person, you are missing things. And that's okay. We all do that. But whatever you're missing is bound to come up again. So if you want to move forward and have better relationships, then... Um, Try to figure out which pieces are really appropriate for you to take ownership. You also can't take ownership of all of it. So if you're blaming yourself for the whole thing, you're also probably missing things. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Um, <laughs> I, I talk about this all the time. If you can move beyond blame, mm -hmm. then you have an opportunity for repair within that relationship. Yep. And to build a better relationship with mm -hmm. that person. But if you're constantly in that state of blame and you don't have either the self-awareness or the ability uh, or emotional capacity to accept your portion yep. of what's happening in that moment or has occurred in the past, yep. um, you're going to struggle and you're going to mm -hmm. struggle the rest of your life. You, you mm -hmm. really have to get to a place where you can move past blame, move beyond it. Yeah. And just that statement lights people's hair on fire. They they can't deal with it because no, it, well, it is their fault. They did this. They made this happen. And it's like, okay, but how, how is that helping? Mm -hmm. And is it ever going to be resolved? Can you ever forgive this person? What type of experience are you going to have for the rest of your life now? Is this the right. next 50 years for you? Right. Where you just harbor this, this blame and anger and resentment. I, I don't yeah. think any of us want to live like that. No, that's scarcity mentality. And, the, you know, there's a, there's a great way to throw a wrench into that mindset, which is to say, okay, it's all the other person's fault. So tell me in what way were you energetically involved in their mess that was working for you? And then boom, we're back at, oh, I got to take responsibility for the yeah. fact that I saw all these red flags and didn't pay attention or, you know, whatever. Well, I love the energetics portion of that because when yeah. you pay, when you pay attention to it, it's like, ah, okay, maybe I can, right? you know, maybe I can cultivate enough self-awareness around this to, yeah. to allow us to actually have a conversation. And sometimes that's really what it is. You guys just need to have a conversation and actually mm -hmm. talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I always get the same question. How can I, how can I manage the avoidant? How can I make the avoidant do X, Y, and Z? <laughs> it's like, you can't make, regardless of whether that what attachment style they have mm -hmm. they're a human being 
-hmm. and you can't make them mm -hmm. do anything. And why should they? Why do they have to change for you to like them? Mm -hmm. I think that's a better question. Why do yeah. you want to change them just so you can like them? And if, mm -hmm. what you're actually telling yourself is, you know what? I don't, I don't like them or mm -hmm. I don't, I definitely don't like what they're doing. Right. So, so let's talk about what I don't like. Right. And what, and also what I want going forward from this person or someone right. else, like what are my baseline non-negotiables? I need someone who's not going to run away or like ghost for five days because they have an avoidant attachment style. So, okay, this is not going to work with this person. How can I find that in someone else? And if I continue finding that, here's the thing, like the good news is we repeat what we don't understand. The bad news is we repeat what you we repeat don't understand. It. Right. And so it's like, you will have the, uh, the opportunity again to look at this if you're not, if you're not willing to look at it now. So if you don't want to look at it now, that's fine. Yeah. But it'll be over and over again yep. with different people, different yep. faces, yep. Sa same problem. Yep. So just remember guys, it's your choice. <laughs> And yeah. it is a choice. Yep. Well, MC, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show today. How can everybody reach you, make contact with you? Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my book, Unbroken, The Trauma Response is Never Wrong, is available on Amazon and everywhere else that you could possibly find books, um, as well as on Audible. Um, and then you can find me on um, TikTok and Instagram at the same handle, which is just mc.phd. And then my website is alchemycoaching.life.